welcome to the last Funds Fan Podcast of 2021. It is also, I am sad to say, the last time I'll be joined by Tom Bailey for this first segment of the podcast. Tom, who has been the ETF editor at Interactive Investor since last August, is heading over to Han ETF to head up their ETF content. For the first couple of episodes of the podcast next year, there'll be various people stepping into Tom's shoes. But before he heads off to Pasha's New, for one final time, let's chat through the latest fund and investment trust news. So Tom, as this is the last podcast of 2021, I thought it'd be a good excuse to look back at how things panned out this year. So let's start off with predictions that were made at the start of the year. Now, making a forecast is a bit of a mugs game, but nonetheless, it's interesting to write and read about. And in terms of predictions, a number of fund managers were bigging up emerging markets to be the best performing market at the start of the year. But as we now have the benefit of hindsight, we know that this did not play out. In fact, investors were once again better off favoring the US market. Yeah, it's a kind of, as you say, this year is going to be a good one for emerging markets. Um, the idea was obviously vaccines being rolled out, lockdowns being lifted, uh, kind of reaching some sort of end stage of, of the pandemic, the economy's recovering. <clears throat> so it spoke, it was, this was spoken about as the so-called reflation trade, so the kind of the pickup in economic growth and activity. And, for, and, and according to many investors, a, a good way to play this was for emerging markets, which uh, seen as kind of a bit of a cyclical value play and kind of would would work well with this kind of economic recovery. Um, so actually, I think it was uh, December 2020, there was a survey from the AIC that came out, uh, which found that uh, of all the regions investment trust managers were bullish about um, for, the, for the coming year, this, this year we've just seen go, uh, emerging markets were top. Uh, but of course, this trade has not worked out. So uh, obviously, it depends where you date the numbers to and when, when people are listening. But broadly, we can say that the MSCI Emerging Market Index has kind of been flat to make it a small loss so far this year, at least in sterling terms. Um, at, and in comparison, the MSCI World Index, which is an index of developed um, economies, uh, has returned kind of around 20%, bit higher in sterling terms. Uh, and also a big chunk of, of, of the MSCI World Index is the US. And as you say, the US has really been the place to invest in this year. Uh, the US markets at several new time highs. So, you know, despite the kind of the, the, the kind of change in the economic, economic outlook with the kind of reflation trade, the US market was still the place to be as it's been for the last 10 years. And in regard to um, emerging markets underperformance in 2021, a major headwind has been the underperformance of the Chinese equity market, um, due to, um, which was predominantly due to um, political interventions that happened in the summer months. Yeah, so as you say, China's been characterised by this kind of sense of political risk growing throughout the year. So we had the tech crackdown. We've had it extend to other areas of the economy in terms of the education sector. Um, and, and then also we've had the other, other kind of risk around Evergrande and, and the attempts to deleverage China's economy. But all this kind of uh, you know, weighed on weighed on China's equity performance, uh, particularly some of the big companies that make up large parts of the index, Alibaba, Tencent, these kind of social media tech platform companies, which had, you know, they, these were some of the biggest companies in emerging markets at the start of the year. Um, and then so just more broadly, in terms of China, China uh, at the start of the year at least was, I think, just over 40% of the MSCI Emerging Market Index. So its poor performance this year has been a massive drag down on, on, the, on the general performance of the MSCI EM Index. Um, but it's not just been China, although you can all, or you can trace some of it back to China. But the um, So one of the other biggest constituents is the uh, MSCI South Korea Index. Um, that's been a big drag on performance too for the broad EM, uh, EM Index, so it's Brazil. 
Um, and then, you know, you've, you've had other kind of emerging markets which have done better. India's been quite a good performer, but none of you have been able to kind of really outweigh the poor performance stemming from China and then these other places such as Brazil, South Korea. And in regards to um, political risk uh, in China, I've interviewed a couple of um, Asia and emerging market fund managers lately, uh, one of whom was a guest on the previous uh, episode of the Funds Fan podcast. Both the managers I spoke to, uh, JP Morgan's Austin Foray and Aberdeen's Hu Young, made similar points in saying that the interventions by China's government into the technology and education sectors is a reminder of the political risks that are part and parcel of investing in China rather than being a new radical change. Aberdeen's Hu Young said that he is convinced China has not killed off enterprise and innovation, and he went on to add that in his opinion, China has been one of the most innovative of countries as far as technology is concerned over the past 10 years. And these comments, they were echoed by JP Morgan's Austin Forey. He said, despite China having a political system that's very different to what we see here in the West, fortunes have been created in the Chinese equity market in the last 20 years. Tom, it's been a difficult year for funds and trusts that exclusively invest in China, as well as emerging market funds and Asia-Pacific funds, which tend to have um, significant exposure to the region, typically um, ranging between 20 to 40%. How have exchange-traded funds fared? Yeah, sure. So uh, obviously ETFs kind of track in the, the, your usual MSCI EM index or maybe the FTSE uh, emerging market index. I've not performed particularly well, uh, obviously in line with performance of the indices. Um, China-Pacific ETFs, you've seen uh, quite poor performance too, but particular one difference is I think is always important for you to, to kind of keep in mind is often if there's an MSCI, if it has a, uh, an ETF tracking a China index, you want to work out, is it overseas, is it A-shares? Um, so the A-shares are, are Chinese companies lifted on shore. Now, a lot of the indices uh, now have a mixture of A-shares and also um, kind of Chinese companies that are listed in places like New York. Um, but it's been those companies that have been listed in New York, to Tencent, to Alibaba, that has really performed the worst. So you can find some China ETFs which haven't performed so bad, which are just really focused on the um, on, on the A-shares index, which is domestic listed companies. And these are kind of old parts of the, you know, the Chinese economy. It's, it's drinks makers, it's cement companies, this kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, that that part of the market performed better. So if you did have just domestic exposure, you wouldn't have done just as bad if you had a kind of a broader China exposure that had, you know, these these uh, New York listed listed companies. And then also just in terms of ETFs, I think one interesting point this year has been the uh, performance of the Lixor Emerging Market ex-China ETF. So as the name suggests, this is basically it tracks the MSCI uh, EM index, but with China stripped out. So because of having no exposure to China in this regard, um, the ETF actually managed to uh, record a gain of around 11% so far this year. Uh, obviously, it's better than better than what the broader EM index has done, um, and and so this ETF is kind of it's it's languished. It's not been particularly popular over the last few years. It's kind of definitely not really popped up on the radar. I don't think until this year you start to see more inflows and start to get written about more. And I think it's kind of it's it, it's a it's a quite an interesting product for people who want to try and gain emerging market exposure without uh, China included. Now, this obviously is might be because of the political risk and the stuff we talked about, or people might want to just kind of have their China exposure done differently. They want passive in EM. They want to then buy a, a active fund for China. You never know. So it's, it's quite an interesting ETF. I think I think people should definitely look into, have a look at. Moving away from China, uh, another prediction um, being made 
at the start of 2021 was that it would be the year for the value style of investing to shine, having uh, been notably outperformed by the growth style of investing over the past decade. And at first, um, last November, when the vaccine announcements were made, there was a market rotation, which led investors to favour unloved value sectors, the likes of the oils, miners and banks. The hope was that the vaccines would kickstart the global economic recovery. Value stocks tend to follow the economic ups and downs. So the expectation of a stronger global economic recovery led many investors into these stocks and pushed many of their share prices higher. However, the initial vaccine bullishness disappeared in around mid-June, and since then, growth shares have once again been outperforming value shares. And this was on the back of greater caution among investors over the post-pandemic recovery. Um, And then that led uh, many investors back to growth shares, including the famous US tech giants. Growth companies are viewed as much more resilient than value shares during periods of lower economic growth. And um, the the data from um, FE Analytics shows that from 9th of November 2020, um, which has been dubbed by some as uh, Pfizer Monday, to the 6th of December 2021, the MSCI World Growth Index has has returned 25% and the MSCI Value Index has returned 26%. So it's been pretty much uh, neck and neck since, um, since, since Pfizer Monday. And as I've mentioned before on the on a previous episode of the podcast, this just goes to show that it is prudent to own a mixture of both investment styles rather than having a low-sided portfolio that's heavily exposed to either growth or value. And lastly, just before you go, Tom, I've run the data for the best performing funds of 2021. Um, so this data is up until the 6th of December. Um, so obviously we're not quite at the end of the year yet. And just for a little bit of fun, Tom, what would be your educated guess in regards to the best performing fund? I'll narrow it down for you a little bit. I'll give you a clue. It's an ETF. Uh, now that some of the ETFs are now in the investment associations fund sectors. Uh, well, that's, it's kind of tricky. It's the ETF, but it's in the IA sector because the the IA sector ETFs are not really that. Um, they're, they're quite broad, uh, kind of index tracking, uh, kind of traditional index tracking ETFs. So. Because uh, I would I would want to say a thematic ETF, but they're not really in the IA fund sectors, uh, at least not yet. Well, it is it is a theme it is it is a thematic ETF. Uh, well, sort of a thematic ETF. You can correct me if I'm wrong. The... Well, it's, it's, it's a sector one. Yes, it's a sector ETF. So um, that invests in commodities. Oh, okay. Uh, S and P energy sector. No, um, I'm sure that's uh, that's up towards the top, but it's uh, it's the iShares Oil and Gas Exploration and Production ETF, oh. uh, which returned 72%. Um, so I also ran the data for uh, fund sectors, again, from the start of 2021 to uh, the 6th of December. So uh, would you like to hazard a guess on what you think the top three fund sectors are? IA Technology Communications, North America, and maybe... UK small companies. You got you got one out of three there. So um so in second place is IA North America, which um has returned twenty two point eight percent. Um and in third place is a IA commodity natural resources sector. Um the IA is the investment association. But the top performing sector is the IA India slash Indian subcontinent uh, sector, which is up twenty five point seven percent. 
perhaps that's going to be under the radar this year, how well um, you know the Indian market has performed and obviously specialist funds have performed um, that invest in that region. And just going back to the overall um, top performers, um, the vast majority are uh, funds that invest in uh, commodities. And in terms of um, open-ended funds, the best performer was the uh, Schroeder ISF Global Energy, followed by the Guinness Global Equity Funds. They both returned 49.5% and 46.9%. And then lastly, let's, uh, let's, let's move on to the sectors that were at the bottom of the table. Um, so there was uh, the global emerging market bond sector, which, which was down 7.1%. And then there was the uh, China, greater China sector, down 8.9%. But what, what do you think then, Tom, was the, uh, the worst performance sector? Well, there's definitely a theme here. So I'm guessing it's staying with uh, emerging market related. So maybe maybe a uh, sub-region of emerging markets, obviously got China, Latin America. Spot on, yeah. That has that was the, that's been the worst performance sector in 2021. Um, the average fund in that sector is down 13 percent. For the next part of the podcast, I'm joined by Jonathan Davis, editor of the annual Investment Trust Handbook. Jonathan began his career as a journalist on The Times, Sunday Telegraph and The Independent before qualifying as a professional investor. Jonathan also hosts Moneymakers, a weekly investment trust podcast. The podcast is published every Saturday and in each episode, Jonathan is joined by Simon Elliott, who is head of investment trust research at Winterflood Securities. Both Simon and Jonathan chat through the latest news and developments in the investment trust world. Jonathan, welcome back to the uh, Funds Fan Podcast. It's been pretty much a year to the date since uh, since you were last on the show, and it's been another eventful year, to say the least. Yes, what a year it's been! Absolutely. Uh, who'd have thought that uh, when we spoke this time last year, you know how things would pan out this year? Yet again, we've discovered that all the well, the majority of expert opinions and forecasts about what's going to happen don't turn out to be true. Uh, the markets are, someone once called them the great humiliator. They uh, constantly confound uh, expert opinion. But uh, as it happened, it's been a very good year, as you say. It's been a fantastic year, in fact, for investment trusts. Uh, performance has been good. Discounts have come in. And uh, you know, it's been a good year to, uh, to chronicle. It's the first fifth year running that we've done the investment trust handbook. And uh, it follows a familiar format, but uh, with a review of the year and uh, some feature articles, Q&As, looking ahead, 50 pages of data and so on. Uh, and frankly, it's been uh, a pleasure to produce this year. It's been nothing uh, too bad to uh, write about. And could you pick out a couple of highlights from the newest edition of the um, Investment Trust Handbook for 2022? Yeah, well, it, as I said, it's been uh, a very interesting year. And uh, I think if I had to pick some stuff out, I think... Um, uh, we, we've got this uh, 80 pages of data and how-to stuff. I've done a couple of how-to uh, articles about uh, how to research investment trusts and uh, looking at discounts. They're in there this year. That's uh, always uh, very popular with the readers. Um, but in terms of the themes in, in, the, uh, in the handbook this year, I, I pick out uh, a number of them. Obviously, the overall performance has been good. We've had record fundraising this year. Uh, we've written quite a lot about that. Uh, we've had, uh, obviously, there's quite a lot of in the interviews, quite a lot of interest in the UK equity market and how uh, 
cheap that is looking. It's been very poor performer over the years in relative terms. That's a theme in there. And uh, of course, there's also the ongoing hunt for yield and so on, which we've written about extensively. So there's lots of good stuff in there. I, I would say that, of course, but <laughs> I enjoyed producing it this year, as I said. And uh, we had an interesting forum as well with some of the sort of leading uh, pundits who I talk to a lot. And uh, they've got some interesting views about the year ahead. So, uh, so far, so good. Next year, well, that's another matter altogether. And uh, I dare say we're going to talk about that. And there's a, uh, there's a section on manager changes. Uh, and it seems to me to have become a bit more of a trend over the past couple of years in regards to um, investment trust boards being a bit more proactive in terms of making uh, management changes um, and, you know, potentially firing a full manager when performance is not up to scratch. And in many cases, changing the full management group. Do you agree with that? And if so, what do you think is um, sparing boards into action? Well, it definitely is a trend. I think I, w- I would certainly agree with you there. And I think the mo- perhaps the most interesting aspect of that trend there always have been, you know, trust to go out of uh, go out of business because of poor performance or because they're simply not relevant. There's not enough demand for them. Uh, and in the longer term context, we've seen obviously uh, a lot of institutions no longer invest in investment trusts. It's become more of a retail market. Uh, they tend to manage their own funds now. Um, but uh, I think the, the tr- interesting part of the trend is it has actually spread to much larger companies now. Uh, we had three changes in uh, 2020, uh, significant ones with large investment trusts, uh, uh, where the boards changed because of poor performance. And this year, we've seen uh, two more very large investment trusts uh, change their management arrangements. Uh, that would be Scottish Investment Trust, which has gone to JP Morgan, or is going to JP Morgan, I should say, uh, and Genesis Emerging Markets, which has... Uh, the mandate's been transferred to Fidelity. Both of these are very big trusts, and I think in the days gone by, it would have been a surprise to see trusts of this size uh, you know, lose the mandates. Temple Bar, Edinburgh Investment Trust and Alliance Trust, they're three high-profile trusts that um, over the past couple of years have um, changed management group. Um, the latter two, Edinburgh and Alliance Trust, also changed their, the way they invest and their, their investment sort of structure. What are your views on that trio? Well, there, there are various, two of them obviously are in the UK equity income sector. That's Temple Bar and uh, Edinburgh, or at least we're in the UK equity income sector. And the other one, Alliance, obviously is a generalist trust. Uh, what are my views on them? Well, uh, Temple Bar is uh, one of the trusts that I've added to the uh, investment trust handbook that I that I produce every year for the handbook. Uh, that's a sort of broad-based uh, portfolio that I monitor. Uh, so Temple Bar has gone in. Um, I quite like the way that they actually stuck to their particular style. Um, the manager is, uh, the, the, sorry, I make a pardon. The chairman of the trust is a, is a very experienced investment trust watcher. And I think he uh, took the view that despite the poor performance uh, that was experienced under the previous regime, um, in latter years at least, and the retirement of the manager, Alistair Monday, uh, they've stuck to a value style. And uh, as I say, I'm, I'm, I'm quite positive about the outlook for that one. I think they've uh, they've they uh, got off to quite a good start, and uh, while they haven't shot the lights out, they're doing okay uh, with their UK focus. Uh, Edinburgh, I'm not so sure. That's gone to Majedi, uh, who also have uh, you know a, have a slightly different version of that particular style. Um, Edinburgh obviously had a very poor track record in the latter years, again under Mark Barnett at Invesco. Um, but uh, I don't. Uh, I'm not so persuaded by this one. I think uh, I, I haven't spent a lot of time looking at it, to be honest. 
Um, it's not in my uh, portfolio and it's not particularly on my uh, radar, though I have talked to the managers in the last few months. I think there are, to me anyway, some other more interesting uh, opportunities in the UK equity income sector. Um, and uh, then uh, finally, Alliance. Well, Alliance, it's interesting. I think one should see that in the context of what's been happening to these very large, you know, traditional generalist investment trusts, uh, along with F&C and Whitton would be the two obvious kind of peers, I guess. And um, well, they've they've made a very conscious effort to, um, you know, to improve the performance and to make themselves more relevant. But, you know, the general trend, most of these trusts are having to buy back shares because they're trading at uh, discounts. And I think it's there is a genuine question whether there is still uh, a demand up there for that particular kind of generalist approach. Uh, I think they've done a good job in terms of uh, the process. But the question is, are they still relevant for the, uh, you know, for the 21st century? They've been around for a long, long time. But uh, are these three trusts, including Alliance, are they still relevant? That's a very good point. I mean, I think, as you mentioned, it's reflected in the, you know, the discounts. I mean, Temple Bar and Edinburgh, I think they both have had a turnaround in performance under new management. But um, both are trading on discounts. Um, I had a look earlier, and as of um, end of trading yesterday, 7th of December, both those trusts are trading on a discount of just over 8%. And this is higher than the average discount in the UK equity income investment trust sector, which stands at 3.4%. Um, and yeah, I, to- I totally agree with the points you've made on um, Alliance Trust. There's not there's not that many trusts that are operating under a multi-manager structure. So I think it is a good option for investors to consider alongside uh, Witten and F&C Investment Trust, um, which you've just mentioned. Although with Alliance Trust, I think it's interesting that prior to Willis Towers Watson taking over, um, and they took over just over four years ago, the trust um, had an ESG strategy. And we're going to touch on ESG in a moment or two. But, you know, if the board stuck by that strategy, you know, the trust could have potentially been the leading investment trust in the entire sector for responsible investing, which as you know, is very much in vogue at the moment. Well, you make a very good point there, Kyle. I mean, ESG uh, in all its uh, various manifestations has become very much in vogue. A lot of demand from investors for funds that offer a sustainable or uh, positive impact uh, mandates. Uh, and, well, I think the Alliance story here is is perhaps something one to think about. I mean, they sold the sustainable funds they had in 2017 for uh, when it had around 2.3 billion of assets under management in those funds. They sold them to Loud Trust in five years ago, and uh, they now have 13 billion funds under management. Performance has been very good, uh, and they have Loud Trust have hoovered up the money. I don't think that uh, the Loud Trust had the capacity to do that. Even if they'd retained those funds, I don't think they have the the reputation or the marketing clout that uh, Loud Trust has to take those funds to the level they have done. But yes, you're right. Of course, they, they when they adopted the multi-manager approach, the Alliance Trust decided to get rid of the sustainable funds because they were not regarded as core. Well, they, I think they got the they got the future wrong there, didn't they? And uh, ironically, of course, they had acquired them, those funds themselves uh, four years earlier in 2013 from uh, the insurance company Aviva. So this, uh, this management team has been handled from uh, pillar to post, if you like, but it's ended up in a, in a very good place at Land Trust. And uh, I think it just underlines this issue that the question really is, what are 
these generalist funds like Alliance Trust for. I mean, they have, they say they're fully compliant, they have an ESG process and so on, uh, but they certainly missed a trick by uh, disposing of those funds when they did. So let's look back um, a bit more to this year. So you mentioned um, a few moments ago that, you know, performance for the sector, it's been another good year. And um, obviously in terms of fundraising, it's been a, a record year for the sector. It has, hasn't it? I mean, that's uh, that's uh, quite extraordinary. I mean, that would be the most notable feature of the year, I would think. I mean, the fact that the investment trust universe has performed on the whole pretty well, uh, I don't think is a particular surprise. It's a very broad, diverse, you know, collection of investment trusts. And because the equity markets have performed well this year, you would uh, expect them to do pretty well, and they have done. Um, but uh, the fundraising has been even more remarkable. I mean, the amount of Money that's been raised this year is the highest since uh, 2006, I think, just before the global financial crisis. Um, and there is, uh, of course, one has to say that one of the great features of the City of London has always been, like all markets, is that you know if there is demand for things, they will produce the supply very, very quickly, and they will go on producing supply until demand moderates. And uh, so a lot of demand this year for yield, uh, and therefore we've seen the huge success of these uh, infrastructure and renewable energy trusts for example, and some other newer newcomers to the alternative asset space. And the amount of fundraising has been, uh, as I say, remarkable. A very, very good year for fundraising. Um, and uh, one has to, of course, to wonder at what point that will uh, produce too much supply to meet the obvious demand that is out there. Uh, but so far, not so bad. Do you expect more of the same then in 2022? There's been a fair few renewable infrastructure trusts launched in 2021. Is it going to be more of the same? Well, uh, I think as long as the markets stay uh, robust, then uh, <clears throat> yes, I would expect there will be more attempts to bring to market. I mean, it's noticeable that I should say that 80% of the fundraising this year has been in the form of secondary issuance. In other words, this is by uh, issuance of shares by investment trusts that are already listed, though some of those have been quite recent newcomers to the sector, it's fair to say. Uh, and that is a difference between 2006 uh, and 2007, when we last had this sort of peak in uh, in fundraising. Um, you have to say that the 2006-2007 precedent is not necessarily that encouraging uh, because, of course, it was followed by the global financial crisis. It was a very kind of bullish market environment at that stage. And a lot of the newcomers that appeared on the market then, um, you know, did not survive or did not perform that well over the medium term. But uh, I think, as I said, if the if the market conditions stay favourable, I think we'll continue to see secondary issuance, particularly by those that are obviously by the ones that are trading at a premium, as many of the uh, infrastructure and renewable energy trusts are doing. Uh, and that will go on as long as the market uh, conditions stay, uh, you know, the weather stays fine, if you like, for uh, for fundraising. There's no shortage of uh, newcomers trying to get to market. We've only had a few IPOs, initial public offerings this year, because of all the secondary fundraising uh, has dominated the fundraising. Uh, and people are being still very selective about the IPOs that uh, that uh, can get to market. So, uh, but it will continue, I'm sure, as long as the market stays, uh, the weather stays fine, so to speak. And finally, we usually um, have a fund manager guest on the podcast, um, and we ask them to reveal whether or not they have skin in the game. And um, so, I wanted to ask you. Um, I'm assuming that um, obviously, as somebody who writes about investment trusts, that you do invest in investment trusts yourself. And I was hoping that you could um, name a couple of trusts that you own. Sure. Uh, well, uh, one of the advantages of having been uh, around for quite a long time uh, is that uh, I have managed to accumulate uh, you know, quite a significant number of holdings in my SIP and in my ISA. I'm just like an ordinary investor in that sense. I have a SIP which I manage myself. 
I have an ISO, which I uh, top up every year and put money into, as everyone should if they can. And yes, uh, I do own a significant number of investment trusts. In fact, in my SIP, uh, I actually looked it up this morning. I have uh, 19 investment trusts in my SIP, uh, as well as uh, six open-ended funds and a couple of ETFs. So if that's the answer to your question, uh, I do have a lot of investment trusts. Now, that slightly gives a slightly misleading impression uh, because uh, some of those holdings are relatively small, uh, and particularly in the property sector, where I have actually been adding uh, over the course of the last year uh, for various reasons, which we can no doubt talk about. Uh, there's quite a number. Of, I, I want some diversification there. So I own uh, half a dozen of uh, specialist property trusts. Um, but the biggest holdings, I can tell you that, they are Scottish Mortgage, you won't be surprised to hear, Smithson, the uh, the Fundsmith uh, offshoot, if you like, a smaller company, Global Global Smaller Company Trust. And I also have a significant holding in Capital Gearing Trust, who I know is a trust that you've talked to on a number of occasions, uh, Kyle. So those are my largest holdings. But um, what have I done this year? Well, uh, I say I've added a number of these specialist property trusts, which I think in the current climate where there's concern about inflation uh, and they produce uh, decent yields and, uh, you know, in things like uh, logistics and uh, social housing and so on, there are opportunities, I think, to pick up some interesting uh, additions to portfolio. I'm looking for them to produce some in income for my SIP. Uh, and I do have a view that uh, we are going to see uh, a better performance from uh, from uh, what we call value stocks over the next few years because of uh, potentially because of higher inflation and a number of other factors. So they all fit into that nice uh, that nice uh, picture, if you can put it that way. Well, in common with yourself, um, Scottish Mortgage is the uh, biggest holding in my stocks and shares ISA, um, which I purchased around a decade ago um, and obviously been very very pleased with the returns that um, that trust has made. Um, before you go, when is the Investment Trust Handbook 2022 on sale? It's on sale from the 14th of December. Uh, so that is, uh, you know, uh, 10 days before Christmas. Uh, you can uh, get it from all leading bookstores, of course, and uh, from Amazon. And there's also, we do offer this uh, free ebook download. Uh, so you get 280 pages of uh, of uh, solid content, if I can put it that way. I hope it's interesting. I hope it's uh, helpful to people. I know a number of people have written to me saying they do value it every year. There's there's no kind of equivalent anymore coming out from the broker firms. They aren't really allowed to do that anymore, distribute them to retail investors. So we're hoping to fill a gap. Uh, and uh, I'm sure listeners will be glad to know that I haven't written all of it. I've written a big chunk of it, but uh, there's lots of other voices in there, including many of names that you will know, uh, You know, uh, Richard Curling, uh, Nick Greenwood, Alistair Lang, and a series of interviews with uh, leading fund managers, including a couple in the equity income sector, because we were talking about that, which might be of interest. Uh, there's uh, one with Murray Income and another one with uh, Bailey Gifford UK Growth. That's not in the income sector, obviously, but uh, it's, a, it's a theme. The UK market is a big theme this year. And uh, I think it's, uh, well, I would say this, I think it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good addition this year. Jonathan, thank you for your time today. Really enjoyed speaking to you. It's been fun. Thank you. That's it for this episode, which is our last one for 2021. Check out ii.co.uk for our fund, investment trust and ETF content. In the next couple of weeks, there's going to be lots of articles that are going to look back to 2021. And then we're also going to look forward to prospects for 2022. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please do give us a like and subscribe. I hope you all have a great festive break. We'll be back in the new year. And my next guest on the podcast will be Walter Price, who is full manager of the Allianz Technology Investment Trust. 